0: I've mentioned to you this before, this story in the aftermath of 9-11, when one of the firefighters was clearing out one of the two towers soon to collapse. He came across a banker who was on his phone while everyone else had fled the building. He remained there trying to close what he seemed, well, it seemed to him to be an important business deal. And the firefighter told the man to leave and the banker just waved him off. The Fireman again told him to leave, but the banker made it clear That he wasn't leaving. And the first responder, he got out alive and was able to write a book about the story, but the banker died in the collapse. And in a sense, we are like that fireman. We know our world is on fire. Friends, the world is on fire, it is burning. And we know there's precious little time. And our society, our culture is collapsing in on itself because of our sin. And at the same time, we come across people like that banker every single day. They're cavalier in their approach to life. Life is all about today, the moment, to live in the now. There's very little thought about tomorrow. You hear jokes in media about people not going to heaven, as if they think that's funny. They even sometimes joke about going to hell. That's not funny. So here we are, the firemen clearing the burning building of our world with people rejecting our important message because it doesn't fit their schedule. It messes up their cozy little life or requires too many changes to their ambitions. So what should we do about it? There are some who think that it's time to just give up And find a little corner of the earth where we can simply wait out the end of everything. They're tired of being like that flea on the back of the dog holding the sign, the end of the dog is coming. Christians have been telling people that the end of the world is imminent, but we've been saying that for nearly 2,000 years. Few people believe that anymore. It's hard to hold up the sign that says the earth is flat, When everyone believes it's round, I don't mean our doctrine is tantamount to flat earth thinking and beliefs, but frankly, that's what they think it is. They look at us and they go, you're no different from a flat earther. And the reason is that people no longer fear God. That is completely gone in our culture. Why should we be surprised? People... Even some who claim to be Christians use the name of Jesus as a cuss word. My friends, this is how serious this has become. You will be canceled out of culture if you use certain words. If you refer to certain people of different ethnicities using a slang or a byword, but you can call Jesus a cuss word and nothing happens at all. In fact, a lot of Christians do, or people who say they are. It it pains me every time I'm on social media and I see someone who claims to be a Christian put OMG at the end of anything. That's really disturbing. Because unless you are really claiming, oh my God, then all you're really doing is just saying, wow, but you're bringing God into that equation. And my friends, that's wicked. Now, we live in a place where it's not just that Jesus is a cuss word. Lately, some have been trying to tie the belief in the Bible to supporting abortion rights. I actually saw a billboard that made that claim. And I I don't know how you feel about something like that. To me, that's scary. And it's scary because... There are those who call evil good and good evil. And that's very, very close to what's called the unpardonable sin. And as I mentioned, people laugh at the idea of hell. When I was in college, I heard a man preach and he was talking about a bumper sticker that he had seen on the back of a car driven by a little teenage boy. And it said, heaven won't have me and hell's afraid I'll take over. Yeah, Satan is just quaking in his boots to meet up with you, buddy, right? It's a joke. People think that even if there is a hell, and even if they're not good enough to avoid it, it really won't be that bad. And how do I know the fear of God is gone? Because their fight or flight response is gone. Do you realize that in centuries past, the subject of heaven and hell would move people? It would move people in a culture, in a society. They were afraid of God. Maybe sometimes even too afraid of him, but they had a fear of God. And in centuries past, what did people do when they had a fear of God? Well, all the good works religions were filled to overflowing with people who were afraid of facing God. And you read stories about people who would crawl across broken glass who would spend hours flogging themselves or, or standing or in, a, in an uncomfortable position or wearing a particular type of uncomfortable clothing, all thinking that now they would be enough for God. And while they were wrong, all of those good religions were wrong. Today they're dying off. Why? Because people don't fear God. They're not afraid of Him. You cannot guilt people into doing good deeds if they don't believe there's a point to doing them anymore. So like the banker in the crumbling tower, they just wave their hands at the gospel as if everything's just going to be all right when we know the building is coming down. So what should we do about it? And I think the answer begins with the recognition that we actually serve a merciful God who desires to bring sinners to himself. Think about this. Jesus, who is the forgiver of sin, is the one who calls sinners to follow him. And he's still doing that. At the same time, the world has more people who need Christ than ever before. Do you realize there's some 7.98 billion people on planet Earth? Which is a huge number. I was on last night on the World Population Clock. There's actually one online. You can see what what the... what. The estimate is of the number of people living on the earth and factoring in births and deaths, the world grew by about 200,000 people yesterday. We have 200,000 more people than we did before. This year, that growth is accumulated to about 64 million more people living on earth this year than last year. And that brings me to my first point. Friends, we have a huge opportunity for evangelism. It's huge. The gospel call is universal in its scope. The gospel call is whosoever will may come. And you look at it here. It says in verse 13, he went forth again by the seaside and and all the multitude. They came to him and he taught them. You see now Jesus evangelistically sought the people. The word here, resort, in verse 13, just literally means to come. They came to him. But Jesus came to them first. And you find that back in chapter 1, in verse 14, when it says here, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Nobody comes to God on his own. People think, I found him all on their own. They were seekers, they were searchers, and maybe... Without knowing scripture, they think they came to Jesus on their own. But friends, a person who comes to Christ always comes because the Father draws him. No one comes to Jesus on his own. God always approaches him first. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us. Jesus loves the sinner. Jesus goes to the sinner. And Jesus went to them first. He went to right where they were and called them to become followers of him. The text states that he taught the people. Now, the word taught here is just the typical word for teacher. It just means, uh, well, like a a first grade teacher, a third grade teacher stands up in class and teaches. And uh, it says you need to know this because someday this math is going to be important or this English is going to be important. And for the most part, that's true. Uh, You get into higher maths and they say it's really important to be able to add and subtract using letters. I'm not sure that's as important to what I do. But uh, other people, if you want to be an engineer, if you want to be a rocket scientist, you probably need to know geometry and algebra and all those higher maths. And that's not even higher math yet, probably. You've got to know the real high maths. You, and by the way, if you get really high into math, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it turns into philosophy, and that's where it really gets interesting. That's the part of math I like. If we if we had just talked philosophy in high school, I probably would have gotten better marks. But. <laughs> Jesus came teaching, just teaching the people. And, and, and this teaching was about himself and his kingdom. It was evangelistic, and, and in that sense, what Jesus is actually doing in calling people to come be followers of him, is he's inviting people to salvation. And specifically, he would call individuals. You see in verse 14, he passes by a tax booth, a place of business. And there's Levi, Matthew, the son of Alphaeus. And he's sitting there doing his job. And Jesus says, hey, you, come follow me. Jesus evangelistically sought out individuals. Teachers often walked as they taught. It wasn't always something where they sat down like Jesus does at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sometimes they would walk and speak. And in this case, Jesus is walking and he's pursuing Matthew. Here in this text, it refers to him as Levi. But in Matthew 9, 9, we find that Levi, in, in something quite unusual for the time, had a second Jewish name of Matthew. And he calls specific people to follow him. I want you to think about this, friends. He not only makes a universal appeal, he makes a specific appeal. And I really believe in my heart, I believe this is what scripture bears out, that those who've come to Christ by faith have responded to the specific appeal of Jesus to them. Jesus is calling you. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, friends, listen to the call. Open your ears to hear what he's saying to you. It's personal. Jesus says to him, follow me. And you see what Matthew does? He immediately responds. He leaves his tax booth and he goes. And in fact, what happens next is kind of interesting because he apparently throws For himself, a going away party and invites Jesus to the party. You look at verse 15. It came to pass, as Jesus said, at meat in his house, publicans and sinners sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. It, it, It just says the call of God is universal and specific. It is also not limited by the depth of man's sinfulness. While Jesus seeks out people to follow him, And specifically seeks out people to follow him. Do you realize, friends, he seeks out sinners to follow him? This is what makes our religion, our faith so different. We are saints in Christ, but we are sinful saints. Until we see him face to face and we are like him, we are sinful saints. We're not holier than thou, we still sin. We can dress ourselves up and make it look like we don't sin, but you know in your heart, you still sin. You still come short of the glory of God. And Jesus seeks out sinners. This is why he goes to Matthew's going away party. Jesus is leaving to become one of Jesus' full time dedicated followers. So, in theory, these people are his friends. And look who they are they're the outcasts of Jewish society. They're the other tax collectors. And boy, did the Jews hate the tax collectors. They were traitors to the Jewish people. At least that's how they were perceived because they took taxes for the Roman Empire. They were hated for what they did. And the publicans, they were Matthew's co-workers. So not only were they hated by the Jewish people, it says it also includes sinners. Now that's the normal word for sin here but it's used as a word that characterizes people's activities. So it's not just that they sinned, but they were known to be sinners. Can can I stop you for a second? I want you to realize the type of people Jesus is sitting down at table fellowship. That's what we call this. He's sitting down to eat a meal with, something that in the ancient world was considered to be a very special time, a very personal time, almost like a family time, and he's sitting with the outcasts of Jewish society. He's sitting with the tax collectors, and he's sitting with people who are known in that region to be sinful. These are going to be people like prostitutes, drug addicts. These are going to be the people that even today in our Christian culture we sometimes look down on, even though we shouldn't, because Jesus doesn't. Jesus goes right to where they are, and he has table fellowship with them. These, these are the kind of people that characterize that formed his discipleship group. The disciples mentioned here are the inner circle of Jesus' followers. So Jesus is there. His disciples are there. The Pharisees and scribes are there. And and all of these wicked people are there. This must have been a fun party. And the disciples here at Jesus' inner circle, this is James and John, at least Peter and Andrew, Mark, uh, uh, Matthew rather, is going to join this group. And they're joined by the other larger follower group of Jesus, people who were once wicked people Whose lives were changed by their relationship to him. I read with fascination. I, I don't get Netflix any longer. I haven't for a long time, but um, uh, they've been doing a lot of their own, um, own programming, uh, original shows. And I guess the number one Netflix show right now is a historical biopic of Jeffrey Dahmer. Do you, do you, are you all aware that that's on? Netflix. Some of you have Netflix. Maybe you're aware of that. I don't know if you are. Jeffrey Dahmer was a man who lived in Wisconsin who did really unspeakable acts of evil. Um, he was he was a, a man who was just just incredibly sinful. Sin had just completely consumed him. And, and I'm fascinated by the fact that Netflix is willing to do this because I am almost certain they will not tell you the end of Jeffrey Dahmer's life. Because the chaplain in the prison where Jeffrey Dahmer died, he was murdered by another inmate. And a chaplain in that prison absolutely uh, uh, professes to be true that he led Jeffrey Dahmer to the Lord. Now, Jeffrey Dahmer's name has been out of kind of the public sphere for a long time. This happened a long time ago. Um, It reminds me sometimes how old I am when I bring up people from what I feel like is just... (laughs) Spend a few years, and and then I find out that happened before the people before they were born. You know, uh, then you realize how old you are. The story of Jeffrey Dahmer is fascinating because back after it happened, I found so many great witnessing opportunities because I would talk to people and I would say to them about Jeffrey Dahmer. Did you hear that he accepted Jesus as his savior? And let me tell you something very interesting. People found that offensive. They were really offended by that. And you know why? Jeffrey Dahmer is a sinner and doesn't deserve to go to heaven. And every time you say that, every time they said that to me, oh, and you do? But that's, that's how we think. Do you realize how many evil people will be in heaven? And how many really good people won't be? see this opportunity is incredible do, do, do you just think about this area the people who live around us we have we have thousands of people who in their homes we're talking the homes across the street and down the road here and and the there's there's they're tore down did you see they tore down all the trees back here they're putting in houses back here behind us that's why they made us the, put bricks on the back side of our church for the longest time I thought you've got to be kidding I've got bricks facing trees, okay? And it's still bricks facing trees, but at least there may be a house there who will enjoy a brick building instead of... There'll be houses back there. And do you know the people who will be living in those houses? Many of them will be Hindus, And they have an idol in their home, and they go just like Old Testament idolatry. Just like Isaiah talks about how you cut down a tree, and with half the tree, you burn the the, the log for your food, and the other half of the tree, you, you fall down and you worship it, and you say, You are my God, rescue me. This is exactly what's happening. It's true idolatry, real, old fashioned, Old Testament idolatry, and it happens all around us. You know what that is? That's not something for which we're afraid. That's an opportunity. These people need the Lord. We have down the street here, across from Bond Park, down in Kerry. not far from here, we have one of the largest Catholic churches in the Southeast. Our, our region, our area is filled with people who are Roman Catholic, who go and and they just go through the patterns and the forms of their religion. I actually remember speaking to a lady. I remember her because she had bright red hair. And uh, if you ever meet someone with bright red hair, it just sticks out to you, right? And I remember talking to her about Catholicism because she went to St. Michael's they call it St. Mike's. Right. St. Michael's. And she teaches a class for children. And, and we were talking about indulgences because she said, I still teach indulgences to these children. Indulgences in Catholicism is a way you can pay for your sins. You can give money and then your sins are atoned for. It reminds me of the great story from the Middle Ages when a knight rode up on uh, John X, I think was his name. Um, he was a he was a Catholic who went around in the Middle Ages and, and collected indulgences for the Pope. Then the knight said to him, can I get an indulgence for a sin I haven't committed yet? And then the guy said, well, let me think about it for a while, came back and said, sure, I'll sell you an indulgence for that. The knight rode off with his buddies a little while later, rode back, robbed the man. That was the sin he was going to commit. Robbed him, got all his money back and all the other money he'd collected. And, and then he had his indulgence, so he didn't have to go to hell for that. That's Catholicism, friends. That's a false gospel. And there are so many Christians who are afraid to stand up and say Catholicism is a false gospel. You don't understand something about our church. Catholicism is a false gospel because you cannot work your way to heaven. And there's an opportunity. What an opportunity. We have all these people who are Roman Catholic around us and we don't hate them. We don't despise them. We're not angry at them. We're not afraid of them. We love them. We want to see them come to Christ. I I, I long for the day when we see our first true Hindu convert. What a blessed day that will be when that person can stand and sing with us, blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow, that'll be great. It'll be something you'll never get over. If you realize this, friends, you realize we have this opportunity at our feet to bring the universal call, whosoever will may come. And we let Jesus, we let God do that drawing, right? He's the one who's going to use his word to draw people. And whether you believe people can reject the draw or not, that's that's theologians debate the minutia of that. Regardless, our point is we give the call, come. We leave the rest to the Lord. You come. and And we don't look at man and say, well, you know what? He's got tattoos all over himself. I saw a story this week that just blew my mind. This guy committed this horrible crime and he had his entire face tattooed blue except for an outline of the word beast across his forehead. And I kept thinking to myself, if you're going to commit crimes, you don't want to walk around with the word beast written across your forehead. You're going to be easy to spot. We don't need facial recognition software for that, but I kept thinking, this guy, this guy has been consumed by Satan and sin. How sad. How terrible, what an opportunity to see people like that in our church, saved, singing praise to God. That's what we want, folks. That's the opportunity we have to see people of other cultures, of other places, of other ethnicities, of other languages actually come and sing with us. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we sang this morning. Wesley's hymn. So to whom are you giving the gospel? Who do you know who's unsaved? To whom are you sharing your faith? Do you live in a community where there are unsaved people? Yes or no? Do we live in a state where most of the 10 million plus population is filled with unbelievers? Yes or no? Then we have an opportunity right here to share faith. Well, now, as broad as the universal call to the gospel is, there is one person Jesus will not save. And that may shock you. He never calls those who reject their need of salvation. Even as we have this opportunity, we have a significant barrier to evangelism. This is point number two. The self-righteous reject their need of rescue. In verse 16, the scribes and the Pharisees saw him with publicans and sinners, and they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? They thought they were different from other people. Do you remember the story of the publican and the Pharisee in the temple? And that wicked man had his head down and he and he hid himself in the chest and he said, "Woe to me, a sinner. And then you had the other wicked man standing across the way with his face up. I'm thankful I'm not like other people Self-righteous say, I don't need to be rescued because they think they're different. The legal scholars here were vexed by Jesus's decision to eat with these people. Why are they so upset? I mean, they're so upset they can't help but say something. They have to talk. And they ask the disciples a probing question. How is it Jesus shares a meal with these people, with these people? How can he share a meal with them? Because to share a meal is tantamount to agreeing with them in their eyes. And this reveals how the Jewish leaders thought about life. Because they believed the only requirement for salvation was law keeping. The idea was still entrenched that only the good people go to heaven. Which is contradictory to the gospel. They considered themselves to be good enough for God. That they were not sinners. That the others were sinners. And the others needed saving which is why it means only the sinners have to come to Christ. This is what they were thinking. The wicked who were Jesus, well, they were sinners. But the Pharisees said, but we're not sinners. It's a sad thing, friends, that so many people have succumbed to the notion that somehow they have not sinned against the holy God. And these Pharisees saw in their law keeping some sort of balance sheet that a ledger, an accounting idea, that if you looked at their debits, oh, there were sins there, there were debits, but then you would look at their credits and they thought their credits were much greater than their debits and that God would let them into heaven and that only the real sinners were needed saving. Oh, my friends, Jesus will not call these people to salvation. Look at verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, they who are whole have no need of the physician But they who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees were not okay as they were. They thought they were. They thought they were okay, that God was okay with them. And you might draw that conclusion from this statement. Maybe even the way it reads, you know, they who are whole whole, don't need a physician. You guys don't need the physician. They need the physician. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying the only sinners I save are people who acknowledge that they're sinners. Look at his argument. If you're well, you don't need a doctor. Only the sick need a doctor. And who are the sick? Everybody. Everybody's sick. Everybody needs the doctor. And this really does bring to conclusion this idea that is so important in our minds. God saves sinners. He does not save rebels. You must put down your arms of rebellion against him. When I was in high school, um, do they still do PE in high school? They don't do it in college anymore. When I was in college, you had to take physical education. At least two semesters. I took soccer and badminton. Aced them both. If they had been my only grades. <laughs> 4.0. <0. laughs> no, I would have got a 4.0. They were my only grades. But then there was a pes- pesky other classes, you know. Well, in high school, our PE teacher decided to teach us lifeguard training. We went to the school's uh, pool, uh, indoor pool, and... Um, he, we were all standing along the side, all of us high school boys, you know, weak and thin and shivering, it was sad sight, and he got into the pool, and he started talking about treading water, and I was a good swimmer, I mean, I can I can float um, for days, I'm a great, I really am, I'm a good swimmer, a, a excellent swimmer, tr- truly, um, and uh he got some of us in the pool and we treaded water and, you know, all the things you have to do. And then he talked about, well, what do you do if a guy's drowning? He talked about how a guy gets, involved. and the problem with a person drowning is they're trying not to drown. So what are they doing? They're, they're thrashing. They're flailing their arms. They're they're thrashing their legs. They're trying to keep their head up above water. They're trying not to drown. And i never forget what he said. He said one of the most dangerous situations for a lifeguard is coming up on somebody who's drowning because they're trying not to drown, and they can actually cause themselves and you to drown. They can hold on to you, and they'll go under. And you'll go under, too, because they're holding on to you. Well, you know, I mean, here we are. We're, we're the brightest bunch of high school students, but we were pretty, pretty sharp, so... Uh, somebody said, so what do you do? You know, what do you do with a guy like that? You come up in, in the water. He said, well, you only have two choices. You, you either have to stay away until that person has worn himself out and truly is ready to go under. And then when he's ready to go under, then you can go in and save him. Or you have to punch him. You just have to slug him as hard as you can right in and get him to stop. Or you're in trouble. You just, you just can't save a person and and I think it's really interesting because the horrible irony is how many lifeguards have drowned trying to save people from drowning. But the only way you could keep a person from drowning and taking your life with them is to get them to stop flailing so that you can help them. And, and in a weird sense all of those sinners they weren't flailing at all. They thought I have no hope for heaven. I have no chance for God. I'm not a law keeper, right? I mean I'm a sinner. I'm characterized by that. All the people who are all the chief law keepers, the head law keepers, they've deemed it so. I'm not going to make it. I have no chance for heaven. Just like Jeffrey Dahmer. But all those people trying to earn their way to heaven, they're just flailing in the water. You just have to wait until they get to the place where they stop. And then, okay, Lower your arms of rebellion. Stop shaking your fist in the face of God and realize I need to, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when you come to that place, that spot in your heart, you're ready for rescue, you're ready to be saved. I I think you need to understand this, friends. I, I know this is hard to comprehend, but God doesn't save everybody. He really doesn't. There is a universal call to salvation. Whosoever will may come, but not everybody does. And while we give out that call, and even God specifically calls people to himself, and the depths of depravity are no limit on what God can do until a person stops their rebellion against him, until they stop that. God does not call that individual to himself. You can't come to faith. You can't come to righteousness in Christ if you're still purposefully living in sin. When I was first a pastor, uh, I I got hired by a church in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Oh, was it the worst? (laughs) I've told you before, you know, the the license plate slogan, you have a friend in Pennsylvania. The key word there was a. I didn't realize the article was so important in that (laughs) sentence. You have one friend. That's it. Maybe not even that. Uh, It was one of those towns that in central Pennsylvania that if you're not from there, you're not from there. You you know people like that? Uh, I will never, ever forget um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hoy. And the, the irony, they were pig farmers. And they, uh, uh, hoys, some of you don't know what a hoy is, do you? Anyway, uh, they're pigs. Uh, so here are the pig farmers named Hoy, and, and they were, uh, had never left the county in their lives and they were in their 70s. they have been in the same county, never, I mean, it's like, a, you know, wherever the county line was, never outside. And, and they went on a cruise for a vacation. They went from not ever leaving the county to getting on a boat and sailing around in the ocean. And I asked Mr. Hoyt, he came back and he said, oh, Pastor Matt, it was just, that was some church. It really was. And we, I had a ministry there and my job was to take some teenagers once a month to a place called the uh, Central, Central, Center County um, uh, Rehabilitation Center or. It was a CCRC or CCLC. Anyway, it was for children children who'd committed horrible crimes. And they, you, you, you can't put them in adult jail, so they put them into teenage jail. And it was a jail. You'd walk in, take out anything you had, keys, whatever. I, I think if you had a cell phone back then, that would have been remarkable. But anything you've got on you, you put in a little bowl, and then they would set that off to the side for you, and you'd go, they'd open these doors, lock doors, uh, bars, and you walk in, and it was a jail. And I got in there and the first month I was there, the former youth pastor was there and he got up and he talked about lying or stealing or, or having the right attitude toward authority. And it was fine, you know, and, you know, the kids just sat there and listened and, and we played basketball with them and got real hot, sweaty in this, in this gym that was a jail gym. It was the weirdest looking thing. Just kind of a square box, not real, real big, um, not, not larger, than maybe a third of this room. And we played basketball in that little spot with them. And then we went home, and that was, and that was the experience. And I, I thought for a month, you know, this is going to be my chance coming up, so uh, what am I going to do? And I said, well, I, I don't know really what to do. I'm brand new in the ministry. I think I'll just preach the gospel. So we got back, and uh, the following month I got there and uh, the, the got up, and after playing basketball, um, we just preached the gospel. And after I finished preaching the gospel, I said, now, how many of you young people how many of you teenagers would like to accept Jesus as Savior? And you know, it was, a, it was a massive number. I want to say it was in the 20s who responded. Well, I've never seen anything like that. Only other one time in my life have I seen something like that, where I've been preaching with such a large percentage of the people listening responded to the gospel. And all these teenagers, there were like five of us adults there. Um, and And so I said, well... We'll divide up. You take four. You take three. You take five. You know, whatever. We just divide it up. And I sat in a little circle with these teenagers, and I didn't. I just didn't have any idea what I was doing. But I thought, well, what I'll just do is I'll just go one by one. And I started going one by one. And in the middle, I got to the middle, and I looked at this young man, and and I I will I don't remember his face. I don't remember his name. I just know he's a young man. And I said to him what I said what I'd said to the couple, couple before him. Now. Um, explain the gospel again. Each one I explain the gospel. Would you like to accept Jesus as your Savior? It means repenting of your sin, turning to Christ by faith, and accepting him as Savior. We just went went through. That's simple, but I went through the whole thing. And I got to the end, and he said, well, I don't know. The other two had already prayed with me, and there were a couple others to talk to, and he said, I don't know. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, tell me what's holding you back. He said, well, you know, um, I don't want to go to hell. I, I get that part. But um, I'm getting out in a few months, and uh, I'm planning to go back and move in with my girlfriend. And uh, I'm planning to commit. And he just started naming all the sins he was going to commit, uh, just matter of factly. And he said, So uh, can I still go to heaven? And I said, Well, you know, part of turning to Christ is you're turning away from a life of sin. And went through that, and now longer time talking to him. And he said, No, well, no, I'm I'm not interested in doing that. And I said, Oh, okay. And he goes, Can I still get saved? And I said, No, you can't get saved. Well, Sitting next to me was a teen girl in our youth group who was the pastor's oldest daughter. I finished talking to the other two teens who did indeed bow their head and accept Christ. I'd have no idea of these people, you know, there's no discipleship follow-up. They're, they're all in prison, you know, they they can't come to church. We would come back. That young man caused all sorts of problems for us to the point where I got kicked out of the youth detention facility. Um, I was only allowed back if I didn't preach the gospel. That was their qualification. So I told the pastor, I can't go back. He uh, ended up sending another church member there who went back to talking about lying and stealing, but I, I wasn't allowed back because I, they said, you can't, you can't preach that. And I said, well, I, I can't come. And that young man would stand there and he would shout out and yell out and say all sorts of bad things. And they had a, kind of some cupboards up along the wall. He would slam the cupboards while I was speaking until I got kicked out. I'll never forget the ride on the way home. I'm sitting in the van, the church van with a bunch of teenagers, maybe a couple other adults. And, and this teenage girl, she was 16 years old. She's sitting next to me in the front of the van, the pastor's oldest daughter. And he, she said to me, I don't like what you did there. And I said, why? She goes, he wanted to pray to accept Jesus. I said, he didn't want to accept Jesus. He wanted not to go to hell. He didn't want to, he didn't want to go walk with the Lord. He didn't want to be a follower of Jesus. She said, no, that's not right. And I started looking at her kind of like, you know, hmm. I don't know you real well. (laughs) I have since learned this young lady is not a believer. She, She is adamantly, strongly, with great hatred in her heart, opposed to anything having to do with Christianity. Because she still had rebellion in her own heart, just like that young man. And God doesn't save rebels. He only saves sinners. Now you're here today, and if you don't know Christ, what an opportunity you have. Now you can come to Jesus and say, I recognize you to be the creator God who made heaven and earth, and there is no one else like you. And I need you to save me from my sin, the penalty I deserve to save me from my sin. And accept me on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross for me. You can die with Christ and be risen and made alive with Christ. That's the promise of the gospel. But until you say, I can't save myself. Everything I'm doing in my religion won't do it. I need Christ and him alone. When you can do that, oh friend, the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus. We have an opportunity. We'd have a barrier. We have a great gospel. Let's take it to the ends of the earth, which by the way, is with a couple of miles of here. Let's take it to everybody around us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this lesson. Help us, Lord, now in these moments. for you to do your work in our hearts, to draw people to Christ right now. I I plead with you, Holy Spirit, to do your work. Before I finish praying, you're you're sitting here and you're saying, Pastor, I'm not saved. I've never laid down my arms of rebellion against God. I've tried to save myself. But I'm drowning. I need Jesus to save me. Maybe everybody thinks you're a Christian. Maybe everybody thinks you're a good person. Maybe you're even a member of our church and you you, you made a claim to salvation, but you know it's not true. You, you, you know in your heart. I'm not trying to confuse anybody or manipulate you, but you, you know in your heart. If you're here now, you say, Pastor, I need Christ to save me. I'd love to pray for you. Anybody like that? Just raise up your hand. Just slip it up. I'll pray for you. Anybody else like that? Pastor, pray for me, please. Pray for me. What are you trusting in? Is it your hope? Is it your works? Your goodness? Is it your God? Whatever that may be. Or is it Jesus? Pastor, pray for me. Anybody like that at all? I'd love to pray for you. Now maybe you're here and you you go, you know what, this is an opportunity and I haven't been taking advantage of it. To share the gospel with others, what a great chance I have. What, a, what a, a pleasure and a privilege to take the treasure of God to people who need it. And maybe you're thinking of a person right now. I'm not asking, should you go? You know you should go. That's fine. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to manipulate you that way either. What, what I really want you to do is just say, will you pray in your heart for that person, for God to give you an opportunity to share your faith? maybe here you're thinking of a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor. Maybe it's somebody on our prayer sheet. Maybe, it, maybe it's a sibling or, or, a, or a mom, dad, or sister, brother, whatever, family member. If you're here, you say, Pastor, boy, even during the holidays, I'd love for that chance to share the gospel. Don't raise your hand, but right now in your heart, just seal that before the Lord. Lord, please give me that chance. Please give me that opportunity. Lord, thank you for the the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for this blessed book. Change us, Lord, I pray. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation. You go to the Lord and pray for those who you thought about.